Welcome to Design Emergency, a podcast and research platform founded by design critic Alice Rostern and myself, Paola Antonelli, a curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, to explore at first design's role in helping us solve the COVID pandemic, and then later on to explore design's role in, very simply, making the world a better place for all. Today we have two outstanding guests, Simone Farresin and Andrea Tribarchi, aka Forma Fantasma. Forma Fantasma is a design studio based in Milan, but with a real global reach. Andrea, Simone, hello, ciao. Ciao Paola, hello. Nice to see you. Thank you for inviting us. Well, this is going to be an Italian accent fest, so it's going to be quite <laughs> lovely. Simone and Andrea are two Italian designers that spend quite a bit of time all around Europe, adopted by, by the Netherlands and now back in Milan. And they design both exquisite objects from furniture to tabletop objects, but also they teach at the Eindhoven Academy of Design and they create wonderful projects that are usually shown in exhibitions that really help people think in a different way about the environment. So I'm going to read from their websites very briefly. Forma Fantasma is a research-based design studio investigating the ecological, historical, political and social forces shaping the discipline of design today. That is why we called today's episode investigative design. But in truth, we could have called it also contextual design. There are many other mm -hmm. adjectives that could apply. So how would you define or describe your design practice for, let's say, your grand... Well, actually, I can't say Italian grandmothers are pretty <laughs> design savvy and, and your grandmother's problem in particular. But let's say if you had to explain it to students that have to decide whether to go into design or not, or their parents, even worse. Well, I guess we could say that our practice is research-based, but any a very good design practice is supposed to be research-based. Um, and we also, I think, always point out that our practice is, uh, in any case, commercial, in the sense that we have a commercial office, we work for clients. Nevertheless, we felt over the years the need of developing, let's say, a safe space to investigate aspects and implications of the design activity that we feel are extremely relevant. And so there is an definitely an invest investigative component into our work. And there is a concern in understanding, as you described, um, you know, reading our bio, uh, on the um, ecological and political implications on doing design today. Yeah, and this safe space in years also helped us in shape our more commercial practice. Indeed, like while most of our more known work is shown, as you mentioned before, Paula, in exhibition, in museums, um, more and more now also our clients are demanding to us like to be uh, to take that research part into the more commercial sphere. And, uh, and more recently, we are really working with clients that really understand that and cherish that uh, our ability in doing that. So your research flows into your products and your clients ask for you to behave mm -hmm. that way. Well, I think also things change a lot in times. I think at the beginning of our career, we were demanding uh, to our client to look into those topics for instance, the one of the ecology. In the recent year, especially after the pandemic, we see a big shift uh, for sure. I think probably over the years, uh, we also clarify much more our position. And uh, as you know, many, many producers 
are you know trying to understand better how they could deal with the sustainability subject and many of them don't have a precise understanding of that and I think uh, thanks to works such as the exhibition we did at Sermshine called Cambio on the industry of wood but also many other works our clients now understand in which way design can be applied not only to design objects and things but also to question for instance their way of producing objects the, the systematic side of having for instance a furniture company and they understand also that we as designers can work at a level and not only delivering uh, you know beautifully shaped uh, products what you have is a practice if i may interject and tell you how you should describe it that is really well-rounded i mean andrea and simona have already been guests of uh, uh, of design emergency when we were doing the instagram live and at that time we were talking about their education side at Eindhoven and their geo design course that they run so there's a circularity in the work at the academy with the students your exhibitions and then the clients that feeds into each other and sometimes the the beauty of the objects is a way to attract attention and mm -hmm. to really talk about tough and uh, sticky subjects, which is uh, what we will discuss today. I mean, today we will take the lens of the investigative and contextual designs. Let's start with one project that is very dear to the three of us, Oris Dreams, mm -hmm. which you started in Melbourne for the National Gallery Victoria and then continued, segued into the 22nd Triennale of Milan, Broken Nature, that I curated. So let's talk about Oris Dreams. Can you please describe the project? Definitely. I mean, Oris Dreams is a few years long investigation into the uh, recycling and repairing of electronics with the aim, of course, of coming up with a series of very pragmatic strategies for the improvement of these aspects in, in electronics and, of course, how design can do that with uh, developing, you know, very simple interventions to allow objects to be repaired and recycled. And it was a project that we conducted pairing together a group of different experts from NGOs developing responsible uh, recycling workshops uh, in uh, economically disadvantaged countries to uh, recyclers, you know, working in the Netherlands, but also in Australia and in the US, and a group also of uh, activists and legal experts to really understand how these dynamics and these different uh, knowledges are uh, looking at the problem of waste recycling in general, and specifically of electronic waste all over planet Earth, essentially. So you started with the research, you started talking mm -hmm. with the NGOs and all these different people and then mm -hmm. moved on to a beautiful suite uh, of <laughs> incredibly elegant office furniture, all made recycled electronic waste. So what comes before the chicken or the egg? It's the egg that comes before, it's the research. Actually, it's interesting uh, to talk about this because when we developed the, the objects, we used them literally as a Trojan horse in the sense that we reached out certain companies with the request of saying we would like to produce objects using electronic components, electronic products, recycled, for instance, gold from circuit boards. And we use this request as a way of, you know, establishing a conversation. So it's, I wouldn't say that the one comes first or the other, but it's rather the one facilitate the other. 
it's always the proof in concept, right, to be able to show the objects themselves. But you said that the aim of the whole project was to de develop some pragmatic strategies. Mm -hmm. Which pragmatic strategies were you able to release into the world? And did they have any, did they have any consequence? Well, we could make some very simple examples. Uh, for instance, I think this is quite a known fact, but electric cables that are coated in, in black rubber they very often are not recognized by visual detectors. And then components of coppers within these uh, electric cables, they end up in the wrong stream of waste. And so, for instance, changing the color or the opacity or the nuance of the rubber to make it more recognizable, it would be a big improvement. We also advocated it in something that, honestly, since we did the project, it's become much more common as a conversation. The idea of introduction of a digital passport with information regarding the materials within you know electronics you have to you as you know probably you know many plastics are engineered almost on a daily basis so many times recyclers must have their own internal workshop to conduct analysis to understand what kind of plastic they are recycling but of course in countries where there are no such facilities and laborers are much more informed on their way of working very often very rudimental techniques are used such as burning plastics to see from the flames what kind of polymers or materials are in there, which is obviously toxic for the laborer. So even just simply, you know, introducing such a password would allow, you know, uh, laborers all over the world to know what they're actually recycling. And many other strategies such as of this simplicity have been uh, introduced. Then, of course, if the uh, project had an impact, we don't know. I mean, for sure, the project has been widely published and we have been also consulting a lot of companies since then, also electronic companies. And mm -hmm. companies, they are not even only related with electronics. I think also about some lighting company we work with. Uh, they introduce changes in their production line, especially when it comes to reparability and uh, recyclability of, of the production. Then, of course, uh, you know, we are also living in a world where uh, lawmaking finally is also uh, even more having an impact in uh, design. And for sure, European Union is doing an amazing job in making sure that electronic objects are badly uh, recycled and especially the planet obsolescence is almost gone for electronics, for certain kind of electronics, uh, since the European Union established some laws and also some legal codes in, in court. So, but something I want to add, I think it was very interesting about Orestream, and it's also the relation that we had uh, with you, Paola, because I remember when we were talking about the project during the Lexus Design Award, I think it was already a lot of years ago, and we were talking about the research we were doing for the National Gallery, and then we said, like, okay, let's bring it to Triennale. And I really love this idea also of ecology of a project, that, you know, it doesn't stop in a place, uh, but it continues. And also that way of working helped us a lot to also work on other projects later on, like Cambio, that we continued on several years. And I think time is also a very important factor when we deal with uh, ecology. It is a sign of uh, a change in culture, I think. I mean, your practice has this uh, tight connection between the gorgeous objects and the unsexy yet fundamental ecosystems that yeah. undergird them. And I think it's um, the collaborative nature of your practice, the fact that research is not uh, interrupted when the next 
art fair comes about. It's not this like obsession with novelty, but rather a seriousness that is akin to the kind of research that happens in science, for instance, or in or in technology. And you know, you talked a lot about the importance of transdisciplinary research. Maybe this is a good moment to to explain what you mean by it and why it's so important. Absolutely. First of all, we definitely recognize there is the need of sort of removing boundaries between disciplines, which does not mean that a designer can, you know, become a scientist. It, actually, our practice definitely recognizes the knowledge that is in the hand of other people, and it's extremely important to credit that role. Nevertheless, we also believe that uh, fragmenting knowledges in, in small compartments, it also leads to fragmenting responsibilities. And I think over the years we've seen, you know, how problematic it has been, for instance, for scientists to find ways of communicating the climate crisis to the general public. And I think we need the effort of all different kind of practitioners in addressing these complex subjects, such as the climate crisis, because we need this to be translated in multiple ways. Uh, we all have different ways of understanding and of engaging with the world and with knowledges also. And for instance, when I was very young, you know, only visual culture really spoke to me. And I think it is extremely important to remember that, you know, reading is one way, uh, looking at an art installation or an exhibition is another way, as much as watching a, a movie. And I think we need this collective effort to address complex subjects. Yeah, but also the idea of sharing, I think for us, it's uh, very important. For instance, when we start a project like Orestream or Cambio or the new one that we will present uh, and we will talk about it later, Oltreterra, uh, we all the time try to also have a platform that is like uh, accessible for everybody also throughout the process of researching. Also, we give this research to our students, uh, usually in the first year of geodesign, so they can continuing it. We engage in public programs like Prada Frames. We organized last year about uh, the wood industry. So we all the time try to also be divulgative. There is something that I think it's not very common for design that is all about copyright and, you know, being ownership. afraid of being copied or ownership. We try to be very open in the way we establish uh, research within the studio and outside. Orestream started in Melbourne for the NGV Triennale, I think it was 2016, if I'm not mistaken, and then there was, and then it was 2018 in Milan. Um, Cambio is a project that you developed for the Serpentine um, mm -hmm. in London, and I think the year was 2018 20, or 2019? 2019 and open in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Another of the exhibitions <laughs> that opened in 2020. I think it was one of our <laughs> last dinners, right, yes. in London. It was the last dinner. So Orestreams was, was about electronic waste. What was Cambio about? Well, actually, Cambio was, and it is, an investigative project about the governance of the timber industry. So I think it is important to call it in this way because many people sort of framed the work as um, an exhibition or an interest into wood. But actually, it is not, you know. Um, of course, wood, you know, it is part of it. But if you think about the design exhibition about wood, you would expect it's about experiments, about how to apply wood, the qualities of wood, and so on. While this is about the infrastructure of extraction of value from forests, and we are interested in understanding how that works, because we truly believe that 
we cannot anymore as a designer focus only on delivering sort of services to users. But we also need to think that the reason ecology is much more complex in, in object making, for instance, but not only in object ma in making, that it is about also how you extract materials, how you transform them, and Cambio, it is essentially about these dynamics. What is timber? Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, it is also interpreted in very different ways and very... It also depends how it is seen on a, on a legal level. But I would say that, that timber is the process. It's when the flesh of a tree becomes a industrial standard blank. And I, I also like very much that when I said what was Cambio, you corrected me and you said what is Cambio because <laughs> it is still alive. The research continues. I mean, it was one exhibition that went to different locations and the platform is still open. The website is still alive. And the work that you've done, not only in the catalog, but also in the videos uh, were quite fantastic. And this is an example of your collaboration also with artists, not only mm -hmm. with scientists and technologists, but also with artists. Can you talk about that when you do that kind of collaboration? Um, how do you set it up and to what goal? Well, it is a very interesting question because I think, first of all, we should recognize that our practice, of course, it tries to be rigorous, but it's not academic. And it, this means that this also allows us to sort of layer our investigations through collaborations that ranges from, you know, activists to um, legal experts to uh, a philosopher in the case of Cambio with Emanuele Cocha. And for instance, for the recent work we are developing for the National Museum of Oslo, we are working with artist Joanna Piotrowska, with whom we already worked together, and we, that we invited uh, to develop a project or like a component of our exhibition in Norway that we actually went to shoot the other day in a farm uh, close to, to Milan. Then, I mean, of course, also the collaboration, it's not, of course, only with people outside of the studio, but we do have a team that is following us uh, in, in this crazy project that usually takes at least two years to develop. And, um, and they are not only designers, there are also uh, people that are uh, related to design, but not maybe designers. And it's, it's a really truly collaborative approach in all the sense. It's also very open. Uh, we travel, we meet people, we interview them. And it's a, also a very interesting approach because when we start this research project, we all the time know where we start, but we never know how we end. And usually, especially because it takes so long to, to also develop the project in several locations, there is all the time an ending. Also, when we the project has been uh, traveling to Pecci in Florence or to Zurich or to uh, Finland with the last iteration, the project changed completely. So, for instance, the, the last ex exhibition that we did with Cambio was in uh, the Design Museum in Finland. And that had a completely different shape than the original one that we presented at the Serpentine. And in that case, for instance, we collaborated with Artec, the Finnish company. Uh, furniture company. This idea of knowing where to start but not knowing when to end is not only a, a research strategy, but it's also a great curatorial strategy. I advocate it because <laughs> it, it also your curation happens in real time. You know, you use your Instagram feed to publish the research as it happens. You have websites that are troves of information. I like very much the vulnerability of not knowing the end, of not having certainties or dicta 
that's to impart. It's really important to have this openness so that the research can also gather more collective steam. Uh, so let's talk about Oltreterra. Oltreterra touches an interest that we have shared for several years, which is an interest not only in interspecies, transspecies, there are all these different, I would like you to talk about the nomenclature, but it also touches on animism. It touches on the, the need to look at the world as inhabited by so many more other beings than just us. So please, Oltreterra, tell us about it. Well, Oltreterra, first of all, it is a commission from uh, a museum, the National Museum of Oslo, that was interested, and it is still interested, in doing an exhibition about wool, which has been ex an extremely important material for the economy of Norway and for the culture of Norway. But when we received the commission, we sort of steered it in a direction that probably was unexpected for the museum. Uh, because we made it much more about the complex relationship that humans has with animals, with a specific case study that is ships. So we are looking at sheep, uh, the, the animal, and from where we, of course, extract uh, wool, and looking at the complex uh, politics of extractions of, of values from, from living creatures. We were already touching upon that with trees in the previous exhibition Cambio. But of course, this becomes even more clear and, and, and complex. And to go back to your questions regarding sort of the words that we prefer to, to use, I would definitely say that we love to refer to animals like as uh, other than human. And we prefer that to more than human, simply because we we love the idea of otherness and also because we, we prefer to equalize the relationship we have with animals more than uh, establishing hierarchies. And I think uh, we have been, as humans, you know, positioning ourselves very often on a higher level than, than uh, many other species. But I think on the other side, uh, more than human is also doing the, the opposite, which is sort of positioning humans on a lower level and I think that's problematic to look at things in, in from this perspective since we are all sort of part of a complex uh, ecology so that's our our preference what I find also interesting is that by investigating sheep in Norway and then in, near Milan, you ended up in Australia. Um, that is also uh, a testament to the fact that so much of the research that you conduct shows us that the world exists in systems, ecosystems, mm -hmm. systems of extraction, mm -hmm. systems of colonization and geopolitics. So how did you navigate this relationship between Norway and Australia? And I know that when is the exhibition going to open? So the exhibition will open at the end of May, 25th of May. Oh my God, I've so got to be there. Uh, so how are you going to show it in the exhibition? How are you going to manifest these ecosystems in the show? We definitely uh, had to address Australia, of course, because the project and its research is more European-based, but we could not avoid speaking of, of Australia because it's the biggest uh, producer of wool and the industry that developed there connected to merino wool is extremely problematic and connected to uh, colonialism. So we, we sort of had to address that. In the contemporary time, you cannot talk about wool without addressing uh, the, the economy and the, and the development of wool in Australia. But in the museum, uh, we will present the work almost as an open diorama. We are extremely interested in how nature in, in the Natural History Museum has been represented through the, the, the object of diorama. Because it is a very inter interesting object, it is sort of a, a glass cage where humans are observing a nature which is completely still. 
that already says it all. Of course, you know, when we talk about living organism, we cannot look at them in this still position. And of course, removing humans, you know, from it. But there is also an interesting, other interesting aspect. Rarely, if not never, domesticated animals are represented in dioramas because somehow, um, scientifically, the animals that live in the wild, they have been extensively observed, while uh, the animals that are domesticated have been overlooked, probably because they sit close to us outside of the diorama, because they are perceived as a human-made uh, outcome, hence inferior or controlled or shaped by humans and somehow not yet domesticated. So the idea is to present an open diorama where we will mix organic materials, uh, reproductions of animals, uh, together with man-made goods. The idea is to somehow show how the development of technique is also the development of biology. And this separation of, of knowledges and also how they are represented, they are actually creating biases and in the way we understand the idea itself of, of nature, of domesticated and of man-made. And we are trying to reconnect these elements because we think it is important to see them as a unified bio ecology. Yeah, and in general also, I think it's very timely also to kind of start to really link these different realities, these different museums. Even if like, you know, think about the museum we are, uh, uh, the, the, we lost the exhibition, is the National Gallery of Norway. It's a, it's a collection of different museums put it together. It's a contemporary art museum, anthropological museum, and uh, um, modern art museum. The museum in itself are starting, is starting to kind of shift into that mix or different discipline and the exhibition will even do more. It has to. Uh, museums need to become more open-ended and we don't want to use those platitudes like breaking the silos, but yeah, it's true. And <laughs> exhibitions need to use all the tools at their disposal to reach their goal. One of the goals for your practice is to level the playground, right? Make sure that there's more equality amongst all the different species. And but you mentioned a lot the concept of transhumans, the idea of crossing grounds. Can you please talk more about the concept of transhumans and the role that it has in your current research? Well, first of all, the term oltreterra is the Italian translation of the meaning of uh, transhumans, which means crossing grounds. And we love this term because, of course, it, in, it in implies many different things related to the exhibition. Of course, it is about the transhumans as an activity, so the, uh, it is connected to nomadic pastoralism, which is a, an amazing way, I think, of dealing with and, and entering a conversation with animals. Many of the infrastructures in Europe, in terms of connections between countries, has been created you know, thanks to transhumans. So the moving in the landscape of animals. And I think also what we love about it is that, and we are not romantic about this, but the kind of knowledge that it develops, it's absolutely interesting. It is about humans, of course, learning from animals where to go at the same time, and at the same time, humans leading the animals. And in this process, we all the time think it is about, let's say the human, the dog, and the sheep. But in fact, it is also about the landscape. The European landscape has been incredibly affected, also positively affected by transhumans, because for instance, there are plants that grew to have uh, tiny hooks to hold down on the fur and on the wool of ships to move seeds from one place to another. So the landscape that we know has been shaped by uh, transhumans. 
And also we love it because of course it is about crossing grounds. And on a more, I would say it's not metaphorical, but on a more structural level of the exhibition, what we're trying to do is to cross grounds between different disciplines. So what are you advocating? A return to a better past? Is it a romantic pastoralism idea? What would you like your audiences to take from this exhibition and to make happen in their lives? Well, I would say that every time we say that we should look back to look forward, definitely we are not looking to be back at, on those times. Uh, but we can learn a lot from it, especially when it comes to how the landscape can be shaped in these last centuries, thanks to this collaboration. I think uh, we really believe that evolution is non-linear. So I think it is also a cliche that looking to knowledge coming from the past is being nostalgic. It is not being nostalgic. We're not advocating to become, you know, old shepherds and going around, even if maybe a tiny bit more we should do that. Um, but it is more about... Uh, you look really good as a shepherd, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, did, I, I was probably with the right clothing when I went, but still, I enjoyed my uh, experience in the mountains. But it is about really engaging with knowledges without biases. And I think there's plenty of things that has been damaged and, and broken uh, with industrialization. And I think this is about learning how to reinvent globalization. And we are not localists, but we do believe there are values in local developments, for instance. So, you know, we're not advocating for any nationalist take on locality, but rather understanding that there are things that we need to make right about globalization. And what is your vision for an ideal world? If people really got your message and, uh, and implemented it, I mean, this is a huge question, but I think we cannot, I mean, to get there, what we would need the most is a different economic model. So I think uh, we should recognize, and I think many economists are recognizing, that uh, capitalism connected to the liberal market is failing. And there's no way you know, to develop sustainably if we don't rethink the yes, economic yes. model we live in. And we are still, even, you know, we say this, we're still part of it. We still work with clients, you know, we are a commercial practice, but it is important to recognize there are things that must be rethinked. And this does not mean being a nationalist or being a uh, idealistic communist. A certain level of idealism I think we need, uh, but it is definitely not possible to continue in the way we are living. And what is the role of design in all this, in your opinion? Well, the role of designers, I think, at the moment is to show the path and also to make sure that people could really see where we are leading to. I mean, when we have been visiting the Val di Fiemme in, uh, in the Alps region, uh, where in one night, like 14 million of trees have been struck by, you know, a strong wind, or we have been with uh, Oltreterra, we have been visiting uh, the valley of, uh, of the Alps, close to the glaciers, and the glacier is not existing anymore. You know, like we, we went there, there were photos of the uh, 95, where you know the glacier was arriving to the valleys and now it's not existing anymore in just simply 20 years, then you realize really that we need to make sure that people get it, where we are leading to. And I hope the exhibition like this, we don't want to be 
showing disasters. We never do it, even with our streams. We never show like uh, the dumps in Ghana. We never show like really big disaster. But the exhibitions that we, we do are in a way trying to show us the reality we are living in. It is also about developing a practice which is multifaceted, that engages with education, that does exhibition design, that still work with commercial clients. I don't think we have the... We cannot live in a paradise where we develop uh, uh, only speculative works. So we also need to make our hands dirty and sometimes uh, compromise and sometimes also... Failure. Fail mm -hmm. in this process. But we strongly believe we need to be engaging in the world and also with the making of things in order to make real changes by any means necessary, designers using all the weapons at their disposal, products, exhibitions, teaching. So Andrea and Simone, thank you so much for being our guests today. And uh, thank you all for listening to us. This is Design Emergency, a podcast founded by yours truly, Paola Antonelli and Alice Rostorn, a podcast that is also an Instagram feed. And on Instagram, we will publish the images that go together with this great interview. Thank you, Simone and Andrea, so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And goodbye to all. <laughs>